And today, the president of Canadians for Nuclear Energy, Dr. Chris Keeper, takes a look at a new investment board funded by taxpayers being set up by people opposed to nuclear. The Globe and Mail's Bill Curry has more details about what Canadian banks actually did when the government introduced the Emergencies Act. Employment professional Brent Paulington talks about why attitude matters so much on both sides of the hiring desk. And family physician Dr. Anna Wolak talks about masks and kids and why it's important to talk about masking or not with yours. So let's get started. Canada's Environment Minister says investors will soon get to buy a new government bond. This one will be aimed at financing green projects, which will be selected under guidelines that experts warn could pose potential issues for would-be buyers. The Liberals want to issue $5 billion worth of green bonds and spend the proceeds within two fiscal years of the money coming in. The government, the minister says the government is targeting an inaugural issuance in the next couple of weeks. So here to talk a little bit about the Green Bond Program, investing towards a sustainable economy is what the feds would have us believe they're up to, is Dr. Chris Kiefer. Dr. Kiefer is an emergency room physician in Toronto, also the president of Doctors for Nuclear Energy, joining us this morning from Ontario. Dr. Kiefer, good morning. Welcome back. Yeah, hi, Sterling. Thanks for having me back. It's a pleasure. It's good to have you back with us, Chris. Talk to us a little bit about what you understand the Green Bond program coming soon uh, to be. Well, Sterling, as you mentioned, uh, I'm the president of Canadians for Nuclear Energy. Um, and we're very concerned that we're leaving out what we believe is the keystone decarbonization tool at our disposal here, which is nuclear energy. Um, and, you know, in this Green Bond framework, Stephen Gilbo's um, prejudices against the technology have, have really been made clear. Um, he has uh, lumped nuclear energy in alongside sin stocks um, like gambling, arms manufacturing, smoking, uh, uh, alcohol production, etc. Um, and, you know, this is really uh, a huge insult to the 76,000 Canadians that work in the sector um, and who have delivered uh, the majority of Canada's CO2 reduction since we peaked in, in 2007. Oh, the other part uh, that, that is, I, I suppose, a little curious here is the contortions, uh, Dr. Kiefer, that the Europeans have put themselves through in the last couple of months in order to redefine both nuclear and natural gas as being green, which, according to Canada's environment minister, is heresy. Absolutely. You know, um, it's been a I think it's been a three year battle. Um, in Europe right now over this precise question of what should qualify for green finance. Um, and as you mentioned, um, it's, it has been a battle. Um, you have countries like Germany, which have spent uh, around 550 billion euros um, on a wind and solar heavy transition. And, you know, as you know, the weather doesn't always cooperate. In fact, the majority of the time it doesn't cooperate. Um, and so they've become incredibly reliant on both coal, which they're still burning a lot of, and natural gas. And guess whose natural gas that is? Um, that's the natural gas of Russia's Vladimir Putin, um, sure. which has, you know, very much limited uh, Europe's ability uh, to respond strongly um, to, to Russia's aggression in Ukraine. On the other side of the table, um, you have countries like France, um, which with historic investments in nuclear energy in the 80s and 90s, were able yes. to achieve what we're all trying to do here, which is a decarbonized electric grid. Remember, we need to electrify everything um, in order to replace fossil fuel services. 
Um, and that is not a task that you want to do with weather, with weather dependent uh, electric generation sources in a world of increasingly unstable and unreliable weather as, as we feel climate impacts. Well, it's very interesting because uh, the Prime Minister has, has just returned to Canada, but he's been in Europe for the last week, speaking with various leaders um, on, the, on the matter of Ukraine, Russia, and so on. And I would imagine has been approached behind the scenes, Dr. Kiefer, on a number of occasions by European leaders going, so what can you do to help us off our dependence on Russian petro products? Canada, and we have a, a Canadian leader who has spent the last five years as our leader trying to get this country's energy business uh, uh, basically uh, eliminated. So he's offered well, nothing in return. Let me tell you uh, an underappreciated fact uh, about Canada and about our, our nuclear sector. Um, we produce, um, we're the second top producer of uranium in the world, right? And the uranium that we mine in Saskatchewan, some of the richest ore grades in the world, um, supplies about 13% of the world's nuclear fleet. Okay. And that displaces 260 megatons of CO2 per year, right? And who knows what a megaton is? Well, let me tell you, that's one third of Canada's national annual emissions is displaced by our uranium sector. Hmm. So we're already contributing massively. That's an underappreciated fact. You know, and this whole question is around, you know, does nuclear meet environment, uh, social and regulatory, uh, so-called ESG frameworks, um, and across the board, you know, nuclear is the most environmentally f uh, friendly form of generation. We don't need to dam massive valleys as we do with hydro. It produces no air, um, no CO2 pollution. Um, right. It provides high quality jobs, right? Every dollar that we spend on nuclear in Canada, we capture that entire value chain because we control the technology from the mines to the power plants. Um, so you invest a dollar in it, it stays here. And you cannot say the same for things like wind and solar where, you know, we're buying solar panels that are manufactured under terrible environmental and labor standards, credible allegations of forced labor um, within the solar supply chain in China. Yes. Um, or we're buying, you know, wind turbines, you know, with some IP from the European Union, uh, but steel, you know, coming from, from Asia, you know, we've deindustrialized, that's the new factory of the world. So, you know, Canada has to ask itself a very serious question as we head into a lot of economic uncertainty here with the hyperinflationary cycle. And that is, you know, how are we going to spend um, our precious resources? Capital is not going to be cheap much longer. Um, and we need to spend it in a way that captures all of that value. Um, and so that's my thesis here about why it's so important um, that this bond uh, be changed so that it includes nuclear energy. Again, just a keystone part of Canada's decarbonization strategy. Absolutely. Now, Dr. Kiefer, as president of Canadians for Nuclear Energy, you are quite familiar with my next question because I would imagine it's the one Canadians ask you the most. And that has to do with the environmental implications of nuclear energy and nuclear waste until there is uh, a, a universally accepted a method of dealing with uh, eternally dangerous nuclear waste, a lot of people, Chris, are just going to be flat out antsy about the technology. Sure. And, you know, there's been a lot of misinformation on this topic. I mean, first of all, it's not eternally dangerous because unlike other wastes like arsenic or mercury, um, you know, we have radioactive decay. So things break down over time. So, I mean, that's that's a small quibble. Um, it's important to understand that nuclear energy, it's incredibly energy dense, right? So we use you know, a truckload of uranium essentially per year to run a power plant. And that means the waste coming out of the other end is similarly a, a truckload. 
Um, right. So we're not producing a lot of waste. All of the waste we produced in Canada in the last 70 years would fit on one hockey rink piled uh, one telephone pole high, just to give your listeners a sense of the, the volume of waste we've created. Right. Okay. And so what are, what are our options? One is, you know, and I think we're going to be doing this, you know, in the next 50 years or so is using this in advanced reactors where you can actually harvest a lot of the energy that we haven't actually extracted from the uranium. And that's about 90%. Um, so a lot of people call this uh, partially used nuclear fuel, not waste. But the other option is deep geologic uh, disposal, right? We do that with lots of other substances um, in ways that are far less regulated, you know, squirting arsenic into uh, uh, rock formations that are not that deep. Um, you know, what we're planning is a deep geologic repository. I've talked to geologists about this in depth. You know, mm-hmm. the mechanism for that waste to get out, you have to get through all of these engineered barriers, copper canisters, clay that binds radioisotopes, you know, steel uh steel canisters, et cetera. But you need to dissolve a ceramic pellet. Imagine trying to dissolve your coffee cup, but doing that in an environment where there's no oxygen. Just the electrochemistry of it doesn't work out. You know, even if you dissolve that pellet, the water has to carry the radioisotope through rock. We understand the characteristics of these rocks very well. It takes a million years for water to move one meter. So right there, you know, the timescales we're used to thinking about that are scary to us are civilizational. But we need to be talking in terms of geologic time because that's where we're going to be putting the stuff. Um, and again, you know, the, the, the potential for this stuff to move is incredibly limited. And in a million years, in 100,000 years, in 10,000 years, this stuff is no more dangerous than the uranium ore itself, which no one is freaked out about. You know, and we live in areas that are, that are radioactive, right? I mean, northern Saskatchewan has a lot of uranium in the soil. Right. Dr. Kiefer, back to our anti-nuclear environment minister and this new green bond program, $5 billion to kick things off. Who's supervising that money? Who's in charge of $5 billion? Well, that's that's a good question, and I'm going to confess that I, I don't have the full answer to that. I have read through the document. It, it wasn't entirely clear to me. Um, again, this uh, green bond framework has been authored by apparently the co-chairs are Christia Freeland, Minister of Finance, um, and Gilbo. But a, a source uh, that I know at Natural Resources Canada has told me this is really Gilbo's baby. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's an initial five billion. Um, you know, there's an estimate that the whole world is going to have to spend something like two hundred trillion dollars if we're serious about an energy transition and decarbonization. And Canada's share will be two trillion dollars. So this is just the initial five billion. We're looking at I think tens of billions of spending over the next uh, decade on this file. And we have to get it right. You know, as you've been told many times, you know, there's a tight timeline. We need to take the most effective action and we really need to follow the science. And the problem with this framework is that the public was not consulted and scientists were not consulted at all. This is highly, highly unusual, um, the way that this framework was put together. And final question to you, Dr. Kiefer, because we're, we're, we're deeply appreciative of your time, uh, and that's this notion of can-do. Canadians have a nuclear technology. We've exported our can-do reactors all over the planet. We even have a smaller, more compact version that we are capable of exporting. Uh, people were approaching Mr. Trudeau in Europe about nuclear uh, assistance. Uh, what's our situation vis-a-vis being able to help not only ourselves, but other people move to nuclear? Well, you know, the, 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 uh, IPCC, right, the, uh, the great big scientific body that looks at climate change has said we need to increase nuclear energy uh, by something like 98 to 500%, right? So there's a scientific consensus on the need to do that. That means that countries that already have mastered nuclear technology have a responsibility to build a lot more of it in country, but also to export it. And Canada has a history of doing that in China, 
in uh, South Korea, in Romania. We have expertise. That's good for the Canadian economy, right? right? I've already talked about what, you know, our uranium production does in terms of contributing to the elimination of emissions. But, you know, I think we're a developed country. We've put a lot of, you know, the world's share of carbon into the air. We have a responsibility to, to act on that and to the rest of the world and help the developing world um, to develop the, the technologies they need to decarbonize. So this is a, a great opportunity to do the right thing. Um, to encourage Canadian prosperity um, and, you know, and to help other, other countries around the world. Are you optimistic that uh, such uh, 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 the, our ability to develop and assist other countries with nuclear technology will be exploited successfully? I mean, it's really going to depend on uh, on the societal consensus, and there's a lot of misinformation out there. You know, there's uh, environmental groups which, for whatever reason, um, don't respect the scientific consensus of the IPCC on nuclear. They're fighting it uh, tooth and nail, and they're very well resourced. You know, in the U.S., we're talking about annual revenues uh, to groups like the National Resource Defense Council, Sierra Club, etc., totaling, you know, half a billion uh, $750 million, right? And all of those resources are put into campaigning, right? Um, and they're up against they're up against groups like, you know, Canadians for Nuclear Energy, right? Mm-hmm. Um, we are a nonprofit made up of all volunteers. You know, we, are, we have, you know, almost no resources in the bank account. So it's an uphill battle to convince Canadians. But, I, you know, I thank folks like yourself, um, Sterling, for, for giving us an opportunity um, to, to share, you know, our perspective on things. If people want to investigate this more, go to c4ne.ca. That's the number four in there, c4ne.ca. Um, and there's an opportunity to educate yourselves about the framework, about nuclear energy. And if you want to take action, we have a House of Commons uh, parliamentary uh, petition. It's going to be read on the floor of the House in April. Uh, in three days, we've already got 3,000 signatures, well more than we need in order to mandate a written government response. So we think that uh, Gilbo's feet is going to be held to the fire. Um, and similarly to Europe, we're going to have to have a fulsome societal uh, conversation and scientific conversation um, and assessment of nuclear energy. Dr. Chris Kiefer, president of Canadians for Nuclear Energy. Find out lots more at C4, that's the number four, C4NE. Dr. Kiefer, Chris, great to have you back, sir. Thanks so much. Thank you, Sterling. As the morning rolls on, we uh, turn our attention to a headline that caught the nation's attention the other day in the Globe and Mail. The headline reads, Banks went beyond the RCMP list of names in freezing a small number of accounts under the Emergencies Act the Bankers Association. The story was written by Bill Curry, the deputy, deputy rather, Ottawa Bureau Chief for the Globe and Mail. Bill is back with us on the program today to talk more about it. Bill, good morning. Thanks for joining us again. Good morning, Sterling. Thanks a lot. Well, this was quite a revelation. This was in front of a committee uh, of the House of Commons. Uh, the Canadian Bankers Association was called up uh, to uh, to basically justify their actions under the Emergencies Act. Were you aware, were most Canadians, Bill, aware of the fact that the banks, for example, have their own language for their own Emergencies Act, Act rather, that was triggered by the Federal Emergencies Act? I don't think many of us knew that at all. No, that was new information. Um, it's, we've, we've been getting uh, details on this kind of in drips and drabs. It hasn't uh, always been entirely clear how these bank provisions worked out, because I think that's probably the most novel part of how these Emergencies Act powers were used. Uh, I think from the policing side, obviously being able to declare certain areas like Parliament Hill or around borders as no-go zones 
sure. that's kind of a traditional policing uh, tool, and the Emergencies Act allowed the RCMP to step in. So that was interesting, but not terribly surprising. But what was really new about these emergency powers was the ability to freeze bank accounts, because uh, you know that's a pretty drastic step. Uh, these a lot of these people hadn't been charged with any crime, so having your bank account frozen is a very, uh, very big step and not something to be taken lightly. So the unpacking of how exactly that happened is still ongoing. There's still questions out there, but we did get a bit more detail. And uh, as, as you described, most of the um, freezing was as a result of an RCMP list that the RCMP provided to the banks. It was largely... Right. They would go around to the protests and write down license plates or that kind of thing and, and then uh, find out who owns the trucks or who's who's there and send mm-hmm. that off to the banks. But the bank, that was the interesting part. They felt that their interpretation of the law is that they also had to do their own screening, and they didn't give a number, but they said over and above the RCMP list there were others uh, as well who had their banks frozen purely based on the bank's own criteria. Well, and Bill, that's probably the most unsettling part. I I grant you that having uh, people's bank accounts frozen for the mere act of disagreeing with the government uh, is one thing, but then to have the banks uh, extending themselves and their surveillance of individuals beyond what the police asked them to do is particularly unsettling. You've had some phenomenal reaction to this story, which has now been up for a few days. What's the sentiment coming back at you from across the country? Well, just I think part of it is uh, there was a lot of, um, I guess, what the bank said, misinformation. So the, I think in some ways the lack of detail about how these powers were used helped kind of fuel the rumor mill in some ways. So mm-hmm. um, trying to sort out how it was used, there's apparently a lot of interest in it simply because of you know trying to sort out what's fact and what's fiction. So um, part of that, I think, uh, explains the interest uh, and just, just to go back to the one other part I thought that was really interesting about that committee meeting is uh, the Bankers Association said a lot of their interpretation of the act was based only on private discussions with finance officials. She said there was no written instructions on how to proceed, which in generally uh, when the, the banks are being told to do something by the government, there's some kind of written instruction. So um, as they continue to have hearings and unpack that, I think that'll be pretty interesting to go uh, at a little bit more deeper as how that worked. It was all and as you discussion. as you continue to peel back the layers, Mr. Curry, are you expecting at some point to find a document uh, 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 agreed to by all the Canadian banks that essentially un, uh, releases the information regarding the the degree of surveillance they decided to act upon separate? from government orders is do you think that such an agreement exists well i mean they were saying it was all verbal so um it doesn't sound like there's clear written instructions from the bank from the government to the banks but there might be documents perhaps inside the banks kind of summarizing their understanding of what they've been told by finance officials i'm just speculating there right Um, the two the two avenues to get that is we're going to have a joint House and Senate committee that has to be struck. It hasn't started yet under the Emergencies Act, which was used for the first time. There's a provision for an inquiry there. And there's also a, a formal inquiry launched by the government that's supposed to uh, be created, and the details on that are pretty vague at the moment. So we'll see whether those are um, substantial or not. I mean, there is the potential if either of them are, uh, you know, 
choose to go deep on this, they could start compelling documents and that kind of thing. But at the moment, it's pretty uh, unclear what either of them are going to do. Well, we've had senior government officials right up to and including the Prime Minister's National Security Advisor declare point blank that under her, as according to her opinion and as an evaluation of the situation of the protester, the truckers, protesters in Ottawa, there were definitely there people, people there who were determined to overthrow the government, thus the rationale behind the draconian implementation of the Emergencies Act all of which, Bill, is subject to investigation through these uh, these committees or these inquiries that you've just uh, suggested are coming. Do you have any idea when the government is going to allow itself to be investigated? <laughs> well, there are timelines under the Emergencies Act, so it, this should all play out over the next couple of months. Um, uh, but I think the, the big question is uh, just kind of how ambitious it gets uh, we should see the House is on recess uh, this week, but they come back next week. So I think within the first couple of days, there's a requirement to have a kind of an initial report from the House Senate Committee. So that should give us a better idea of what they're going to do. And then uh, I guess this inquiry is a matter of who's in charge, who's on it, uh, how aggressively they're going to uh, enforce their mandate. It's all, We're all in uncharted territories. This is a law from 1988 that had never been used before. It had a lot right. of oversight provisions in it, but they were vague. Like they... The, the parts about the, the, the committee inquiries, for instance, make references to political parties in the Senate. And you know, at the moment, the, you know, the Senate mostly sits in factions of independence, except for the That's conservatives. Right. So it's, uh, you know, there's, there's kind of language from 1988 that's a bit outdated from the current context. So a lot of this is interpretation of how they're going to uh, invoke their mandates. And, and hopefully it's, uh, it uh, leans towards the more thorough oper- uh, options. Yeah, I think a lot of Canadians are very much looking forward to the revelations that an investigation might provide. Bill, a final question to you, and we're always grateful when you join us. Uh, a, a step back, if you would, please, and look at the big picture. What do you understand the intentions of a budget to be this year in terms of timing? Typically, it's in April. What do you know about Christian Freeland's plans for the next Canadian federal budget? Well, I mean, we have the benefit of, because we're right after an election, um, there was an election liberal platform with about $70 billion in new spending measures. That was just in the fall. So turning that into government policy was probably, uh, you know, when they're drafting the budget, that's where they would start. And the big question would be, I guess, how relevant is that now? Have things changed? Do you still need that degree of stimulus spending? Uh, yeah. you, know, when the, you know, we had a large job number report there. And then secondly, how do you weigh these demands for Canada to really increase its defense spending when it's under pressure from its uh, NATO allies to do more in in reference to uh, Ukraine and Russia. So I think uh, weighing how much stimulus is still needed is uh, is a factor and how much defense spending is needed because that wasn't a big part of the Liberal platform in the fall. So will we see one before the summer, do you think? Yeah, I think so. The, the rumors are early April, but there's also oh, okay. some talk that it could be later than that. So uh, I think that's where we're watching, we, but we don't have a, a date yet. <laughs> Generally, they have it in February and March at times, but um, and which uh, helps. And the, the fiscal year starts April 1. So, I mean, just from a practical point of view, a lot of like the parliamentary budget officers said it'd be much better to get the budget out earlier in the year so that you know Parliament has a better understanding of the books for the year ahead. So, when you do it in April, it causes a lot of problems in terms of transparency for the MPs and the public in understanding these documents and what, where the money's going. 
Absolutely. Well, we'll keep an eye on things. And when we get a little closer to it, expect a call. And we do appreciate it every time you take a few moments out of your weekend to join us here in Vancouver, Bill. We much appreciate it. Thanks a lot, Sterling. Good morning. I'm Sterling Fox, joined on the line by Brent Pollington from Express Pros Employment Professionals. Brent, good morning. Welcome back. Yeah, thanks for having me. Uh, it's good to have you back with us. We're going to talk about attitudes on both sides of the desk. But Brent, uh, one of the things that you at Express Pros do, uh, you've got yourself, you identify yourselves corporately as HR doctors. What's that about? Yeah, it's our core values. We uh, we see ourselves as both to our clients and to the job seekers as helpful, resourceful in the job search. We're driven, relentless, and everything kind of has to make sense and all tie together. And so uh, our team's been trying to produce content uh, both to the job seeker and the employers uh, to just help them understand like the challenges and the difficulties of the job search. It's really hard for both sides right now. And uh, again, as a doctor, like we, we feel like, you know, obviously you don't want to see us every day. You don't even want to see us every month or every year, but when you do, sure. you want somebody who's going to take the time to really try to dig in and understand the challenges and needs and find a solution. That's, you know, not just a bandaid. So we, right. we really feel it's a, it's a great approach to take and, and have, trying to been a, or, or have been trying to apply that with, with, again, the job seekers that come to us and, and who kind of say they're looking maybe for a position and we see if it is, in fact, the right position. And if not, try to navigate and give, give some consulting, some advice on, on the direction they should go and same with the business when they come to us looking to hire. Often it's our job to try to poke as many holes as we can in their logic and where they're sure. trying to go and, and the approach they're taking to ultimately ensure that, uh, you know, they are, in fact, going to hire the right person uh, and looking for the right skills and, and that they have the ability to set the person up for success. Yeah, well, and of course, in the times are busy. You must be just absolutely just going flat out. 337,000 new jobs added across Canada just last month alone, Brent. So clearly, uh, employment people like yourself, very busy. We're running a story on Global News this morning, and the headline is Employers Revamp Hiring Plans to Meet the Talent Crunch and the Demand for Hybrid Work. And they're going on about talking about how employers are realizing they need to be more flexible in in what people are calling the war for talent as, uh, as people are requesting uh, more of a hybrid situation. Are you coming across this in terms of uh, applicants coming to you looking for work saying, I don't really feel comfortable about going back to any workplace full time. Have you got any hybrid situations? Yeah, I, I, I don't think it's the comfortable piece. I think people are comfortable with the COVID restrictions and the masks and, and, and whether those are lifting or unlifting. I think it's a, it's people have realized that they've found ways to work from home. It's created a great deal of balance for them uh, yeah. and that they want that balance to continue in future opportunities. Uh, I've, I, myself and a, and a large number of our clients tend to look for people when they first join uh, the organization to spend the first couple months in office sure. uh, and then create the luxuries to, to transition. The number one biggest thing for us, specifically for inter- internal hires with us, is that we have such a great team. There's a beehive of activity that happens internally in our office, and I've shared with new employees that, that there's so much like value you can get from being in the office, but I also right. understand I need to be flexible as an employer, and I think employers need to be flexible to understand that like culture's always been such an important thing, and if it's a detractor for an employee that they're making a 30-minute, an hour commute, I mean, Vancouver traffic isn't getting any better. Uh, right. And so for somebody, somebody to be able to, 
had the freedom flexibility, but also to, you know, not be at a desk from eight to five and, you know, to be able to work for an hour and a half or two hours and take a 15 minute break, walk the dog, go outside and, and be able to pick and choose and, and also not even have to be a part of that eight to five. It's about, you know, choosing the amount of time that you can work and be productive and can you still deliver? And if you can, if you can deliver, I mean, if, for one of my employees, I don't care the hours that you work as long as, as long as you're getting your job done. Sure. Uh, I wanted to talk to you about one thing that you mentioned to us on your last visit with Brent and on a lot of young people, particularly just entering the job market, they'll show up at, a, at an employment office like yours and say, and you say across the desk from, so what kind of work are you looking for? And they'll say, Oh, I'll, I'm looking for anything. And in yeah. fact, you understand even by that answer that that's not true. So how do you get people to, to narrow down and get become more focused in the type of work they're actually looking to do? Yeah, yeah, a couple of great points. I mean, I, I feel sometimes the biggest challenge for these poor guys and girls is that uh, they're not getting set up for success coming out of the education system and, and being kind of told, like, how to go about the search. I mean, someone who comes in and says, I'm open to anything, and we'll say, okay, well, are you willing to do, you know, construction? Oh, I don't want to work outside. I don't want to do heavy lifting. It's like, okay, our mm-hmm. very first question, you've negated your statement. I think right. the problem is, is that there's so much information out there. It's readily available. It's through easy Google searches, YouTube and Facebook, but either they're not told or, or it's not identified that there's a ton of information that somebody can get in their job search. And I think it's really critical for a job seeker to spend any time, whether it's investigating the companies that they're applying to. We get people that apply for internal positions with us and I ask them how they found the position and they go, oh, I just Googled you and found your website. I think, okay, right. what do you think about our website? Oh, I didn't really spend any time going on it. It's like, okay, well, you know, we're kind of done here. Like, I've, you know, you, you've demonstrated to me that you've put zero, uh, um, you've put zero time and effort into your search. And I right. just think it's, 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 you know, employers, employers want to see somebody who cares about their job search, because if you are open to any job, you don't care what the job is, then there's nothing tying to you to that job. And that employer is going to have this underlying fear that, you know, you don't care what job you have. So if you're unhappy, you're just going to walk away because you'll take any job. I think yeah. it's, 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 you know, a detriment to the job seeker to not invest the time and really look for an employer that they care and want to work for, because that's what the employers want and the employees that they hire. Excellent point. And I'm glad we took the time to make it again, because you, you, you brought that up a few weeks ago when you're last with us. And I thought, you know, we should return to that one, Brent, because the more focused you appear to be on the other side of the desk, the more hireable that person sees you as being correct. Absolutely. All right, Brent, thanks for this. Yeah. Yeah. Great. Thanks for having me. question of the day, and we do appreciate the many calls and emails we've received regarding this, masks are no longer mandatory. Are you okay with that? Very interesting reactions to all of that. Here to talk about masks and the mandate being removed and going forward is Dr. Anna Wolak, family physician, UBC professor, and good friend of this program. Dr. Anna, good morning and welcome back. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Well, it's a pleasure. As always, the mask mandate uh, is is over. Vaccine passports will be coming up for reconsideration shortly. Uh, in your life, in your family, you have three elementary school age children. Uh, when they go back after spring break, there won't be any masks in their schools. How do you feel about that as a mom before be even the doctor's opinion here? Um, as a mom, I'm really worried about the school mandates in particular having been lifted because it's 
the, the lifting of the mask mandates downloads the responsibility to, you know, each individual person, each individual person can assess their risk. And that's, that I, it was coming. It certainly is something that moving forward, we do have to look at. But it's right. a bit unfair to be downloading that to children, especially when we know that their the vaccination rate in that age group is not the best. And I think we're the second worst in the country, number one. And number two, we, we talk a lot about children's mental health and how it's been affected during the pandemic. Yes. Taking them, removing the mask mandate could increase the peer pressure in schools so that those children who will make an accurate risk assessment and want to wear masks, for example, may find the peer pressure and then have to deal with that bullying and peer pressure in the last third of the school year. And I think that was really unfair. And while it may have been time to lift blanket mandates in, say, restaurants and cinemas, that sort of thing, I don't think it was time for schools yet. Right now, uh, when uh, as your children return after spring break, uh, and you and you've got your hands full for the next couple of weeks, haven't you? But when you send the kids back to school, Doctor Anna, will they be wearing masks as their mom? Will you say, "Look, kids, we prefer your dad, and I would prefer you continue wearing your mask"? Is that what they're going to do? They they will, and they actually told us on. Thursday afternoon when we picked them up from school, they came straight out and told us, they're like, we don't understand why, and we are going to wear masks. And apparently they had, all these kids had these, at least my fifth grader for sure, had this discussion with their friends, and they were all discussing about wearing masks, which, you know, kind of as a parent makes us proud, but at the same time, it's like, they, you know, they're, they're 10, and downloading this responsibility to them, we didn't really feel that was something that you know, they're growing up so fast and they have to decide on this on their own themselves. Yeah. And, you know, back to your point about uh, mental health, Dr. Wolak, uh, it's, it's been pointed out by experts in child behavior. Uh, and I just read it. I, I don't pretend to be one, but it's been pointed out that in terms of visuals, small people, children particularly, rely on facial expressions to, the, to, to a degree that even adults don't. And having that ability to recognize those signals, etc., taken away for so long has been an impairment for some children. The studies actually do not show that, and a lot of um, pediatricians and behavioral specialists actually don't believe that that is the case because, yes, children spend a large amount of time in school, but there's still people are not masking at home. And right. so they are learning facial expressions from their, their parents, their siblings, people around them, or if they're going outside. And also you can see it, and as a physician, I'll do it as well. When I have a young child in my, in my office, even though I am masked, I, will, I know I can feel myself making bigger facial expressions. And sure. the children are reacting appropriately to me. If I'm trying to make a funny face, even with my mask on, the children are still laughing with me. So mm-hmm. they, they, we have adapted, and using that as a reason is not, certainly not a valid reason. I wanted to talk a, a little bit about, again, another point you just made. When the kids go back to school, some parents, like you, are going to uh, prefer and insist that their children continue wearing masks. Others won't. Others will be relieved to have the masks removed. So there, there is a possibility of some friction. 
Now I'm taking that and I and I'm I'm transferring it to the calls we've received today and emails in response to our question, which basically is vaccine mandates have been removed. Are you okay with that? And Dr. Anna, most people who called us this morning said basically yes, we are. Many of them saying, look, I'm gonna continue wearing my mask pretty much indefinitely, but if other people want to take theirs off, fine, good for them. Uh, So there's an accommodation already being reached uh, to each his or her own at the adult level. Do you think that kind of accommodation can be reached with children or are you expecting more of the bullying stuff? It needs to be modeled. So this sort of thing needs to be modeled from the top, needs to be modeled by the teachers, needs to be modeled by their parents. And if they are, if And again, it is an individual risk assessment for each child and Mm -hmm. the child's community bubble. You know, the child may be, you know, double vaccinated and perfectly healthy, but go home to, you know, a parent with cancer or an elderly grandparent who babysits them. That's a completely different risk assessment. And I would hope and expect that all the adults in these children's lives are using this opportunity to speak with their children and say, both ways, do not bully another child for wearing a mask. And conversely, do not give another child a bad time for not wearing a mask. Because it is, unfortunately now, and that's where the struggle with the removal of the mask mandates in schools are, is we're now entering a very thorny portion. And we have two weeks to, to help our children sort through their own feelings about this as well. Sure. Now, of course, the government, in making the announcement about the removal of mask mandates and the eventual removal of the vaccine passport, obviously, in advance of these uh, orders being lifted, they do point to our our vaccination rate. And we're well into the 90s for second shots. But then you point out that in terms of the booster, which is where a lot of us, of course, are are placing our most faith in terms of sustained resistance to COVID, uh, amongst our children, children is where the booster phase seems to drop off. Do you have any idea why so many parents may be triple vax themselves, Dr. Anna, but are reluctant to commit the same to their children? And it's not just the booster. It's our first dose rate is not great. First dose, second dose, third dose, it is falling. It is quite significantly quite low in children age 5 to 11. And when I talk to parents as well, those with children under the age of five are equally anxious about it. And a lot of it plays into a lot of social media disinformation. And there is a very active um, disinformation campaign against how um, trying to promote that vaccines are are ineffective or are dangerous. And a lot of it has to do with parents needing to talk to their healthcare provider needing to talk with with other parents and sitting there and thinking about what their concerns are and bringing them up and not just relying on what you read on social media or even on the news and talk to talk to your family doctor because you may have your own um you may have your own concerns and that's why we're here we want to be able to address those concerns and help you think through those concerns because ultimately every physician just wants to protect our patient, we just want to protect the children, and we will not counsel something that 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 we're not that we don't believe in as being safe and effective. And one of the biggest things you need to look at is a lot of every single physician parent I know has their child vaccinated 
to the most up-to-date that they can. So right. for 5 to 11, they are vaccinated twice. For those between 12 and 17, those children of physician parents are vaccinated three times. And, that, and we would never do to our family what we do not believe is safe and effective. Dr. Wolak, final question to you. We're always great to have you on the program. Uh, for the last couple of years, and it's literally been two years since COVID mm-hmm. was discovered and, and announced and we became aware of this uh, phenomenon, but for the last couple of years, we have been counseled by everyone from the prime minister right down to local and regional health officers to be Beyond cautious, Dr. Anna, we've been counseled to be afraid. We were told to go hide in our homes for months. Uh, There are people who bought into that mentality of fear who to this very minute are terrified at the prospect of going out um, and, and, and mixing it up with large numbers of people. How do you get, how do you counsel someone who bought into that, who's, who's finding it difficult to let go? That's a really good question because, again, it is about individual risk. And so what I'm doing with each individual patient or a family member or loved one in my life is I sit down and we're like, look, we're, we're past the point of everybody needs to do X, Y, and Z. We needed right. that at the beginning because we didn't have any protections at all and we didn't know what we were dealing with. Now mm-hmm. we know our individual risks and I have to sit down with each person. So the advice is different now for each individual person and say, these are the people you live with. These are your individual risks. These are their risks. And let's sit down and think, what are the risks of what you want to do? And, you know, eventually we do need to get back to some sort of normal. It may not be exactly, you know, 2019 levels of normal, but as close as possible. And, you know, we should not be aiming for a March 2020 or April 2020 level, but, you know, somewhere between December 2019 and March 2020 is where where we're looking at. Indeed. Dr. Anna Wolak, always a pleasure to have you with us. We appreciate your, your wisdom and your reassurance. Thanks so much for joining us again this weekend. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts or listen to us live 6 to 9 weekend mornings. I'm Sterling Fox. Have a great week. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance (laughs) recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.